Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, January 7th, 2015. All right, we're going to do something a little bit different today. It is definitely going to be our light episode, but I'm going to do something I have not done in a while. In fact, I can't remember ever doing it. And uh, that is, in a brief amount of time, playing, well, a sermon from a guy and then playing a lecture from a guy. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, because there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we want you to stop and just read God's Word in context and learn how to listen for sound biblical exegesis as opposed to narcissistic eisegesis or bible twisting or proof texting uh, you know things like that you don't you know you got to be very careful with scripture you want to handle it correctly so we want to help you learn how to listen for sound doctrine and uh, i've made the decision today for the light episode i'm not going to continue yet with my lecture series on uh, as i ramble my way through genesis but in light of the controversy regarding the Perry Noble, there is no Hebrew word for command thing, <sighs> which is just patently false. What I've decided to do is to play a lecture by Phil Johnson entitled Why God Gave the Law. He's uh, working his way in this lecture series through the book of Galatians, and I think he does a fantastic job of explaining why God gave the law from the book of Galatians, what its purpose is. And when you hear why God gave the law in contradistinction to why Perry Noble says, oh, well, we need to make these into promises because people are saying, oh, I don't want to become a Christian because I don't think I'm going to succeed at keeping those Ten Commandments. Well, if you actually understood the biblical reason why God gave the law, which a pastor should know before he becomes a pastor, by the way, then you would never say something to the effect of what Perry Noble said. So uh, today's light episode will be this lecture by Phil Johnson. In fact, let's get right to it. Here's Phil Johnson and his lecture on why God gave the law. We have been studying the book of Galatians since I think the beginning of the year is about when we began this, and we are trying to take sort of bite-sized chunks of 10 or 15 verses at a time. A few times we've done just five verses, but we're trying to get through this in a reasonable amount of time. I really thought at the beginning of the year we'd finish Galatians before the end of the year, and I think it's going to take about twice as long as I expected. So, but nonetheless, our study has brought us to the heart of Galatians 3 this morning. And 
I intend to finish this chapter this morning because, as I said, next Sunday, Christmas, the start of Galatians 4 is a perfect text for Christmas. And so I want to get to this and finish this chapter. We have about 15 verses to cover this morning. We left off two weeks ago, Galatians 3, with verse 14. And so I want to pick up at verse 15 this morning. I already have a long message, so I'm not going to do a full review of the whole book of Galatians. I've been doing that. I've been sort of reviewing it for you each week so you can get the context. And I'm hoping most of you have that. Some are here for the first time. And so let me just say this much. Paul wrote this epistle to confront the error of some legalistic false teachers who were undermining the simplicity of the gospel by teaching that in order to become a Christian, you needed something more than just simple faith in Christ. They were ritualists. They were legalists who believed that the essence of religion is bound up in ceremonies and legal observances. Now, that is, frankly, what most religious people believe. And these guys, especially coming from a Jewish background, insisted that Gentile men who became Christians needed to be circumcised, needed to adopt all the Jewish practices and all the Jewish laws from the Old Testament ceremonies. And Paul said that's false teaching and seriously false. He said it's no minor matter because, in effect, what they were doing was making the law, rather than faith alone, the instrument of justification. And Paul said that turns Christianity into a system of works. It's a legal system derived maybe from Moses' law, the way they were teaching it, because it was based on Moses' law. It was a system of works rather than faith in Christ. And that was the same thing as saying Christ really didn't do enough to save us, because in effect, it teaches people that there is something they have to do for themselves in order to make them truly acceptable in God's sight, as if Christ's righteousness alone weren't enough of a covering to justify us before God. And so these men made much of the law, and they were teaching Gentile Christians that all of Moses' law, in effect, was still in force, and so they needed to become really Jewish proselytes if they wanted to be authentic Christians. That was the essence of their error. And in their view, they were trying to make Christianity just sort of a refinement of Judaism. It was simply a system of law like the one that was inaugurated under Moses. And they wanted to retain all the ceremonial, dietary, and priestly requirements of the law. They said those things ought to be binding on Christians. Now, there are at least two reasons Paul gives here why that's a damning lie. And he says that. He pronounces a curse on these teachers at the very beginning of the book. And he says, this is a lie that will damn you, and here's why. One reason, he says, is that Christ has already fulfilled the law on our behalf. One of the things Christ did throughout his earthly life was meet every requirement the law ever set forth. And he did that as our proxy and our substitute. And so the righteousness Christ provides for us already meets every requirement the law makes of us. And we'll see that better when we get into chapter 4. That's that's the very thing Paul has in mind, I believe, when he says Christ was born under the law. 
And a second reason, which we looked at last week, is that the law can't justify because it curses sinners for every imperfection. And therefore, Paul said, our own imperfect obedience to the law cannot possibly justify us before God because the law demands perfection. Now, in the section we're looking at this morning, Paul has to answer some obvious questions that come out of this. These are questions virtually everyone asks as soon as we realize that the law has no power to save sinners. And you understand this. No one, and we'll see this this morning very clearly, no one, even in the Old Testament, was ever saved by obeying the law. Because the law has no power to save. The law cannot do anything for a sinner except damn him. And so the question that obviously comes up is, why did God give the law in the first place? Why did God hand down these tablets of stone with the law on it through Moses to give to the nation of Israel? Why all the detailed laws about ceremonies and sacrifices and priestly rituals if rituals could never save anyone? Why did God institute these things in the first place? Why all the dietary requirements? Why all the symbols and statutes that are clearly spelled out in the Old Testament? Why did God inaugurate those things in the first place? Those are some of the questions we ask, and Paul's going to answer. And then there's the really hard question, and it's this. This is one of the most confusing and difficult questions in all of theology, and it's this. What is the relevance of the Old Testament law for Christians. Is Paul saying here that it has no relevance to us whatsoever? If that were the case, couldn't we just tear the Pentateuch out of our Bibles and throw it away? Because common sense and Scripture tell us that there is some relevance in the law for us as Christians. What is the relevance of it? Is any aspect of the Old Testament law binding on Christians today? And especially, what about the law's moral content? as summarized in the Ten Commandments. We studied the Ten Commandments a few years ago and saw that there are principles there that are binding on us. So we know that Paul is not casting aside every conceivable application of the law for Christians. What is the relevance of the law to us as Christians? And you have to be careful how you answer those questions because they're not, as I said, easy questions. And they don't have simple answers, and people who think the answers are simple usually end up in trouble, and you have people on both sides of the equation this way. Some who who think the law is binding and become legalists, others who say the law has no relevance to us whatsoever and become, become antinomians. And so on the one hand, you have the obvious danger of legalism. That's the error of the Judaizers. That's what Paul is confronting here, and so he's going to have a lot to say about that in the verse, verses and chapters to come. But, and I want to stress this this morning, there is an equal danger on the opposite side. And Paul is going to have something to say about this also before we get through the book of Galatians. There are some who want to declare the law totally irrelevant to Christians and teach that all of the principles of the law can be safely ignored as if all the law had been abolished, including the moral precepts. We're not under law. We're under grace. In fact, some Christians 
brush away the whole law of God by simply quoting Romans 6, 14 and 15. We are not under the law, but under grace. As if that meant to declare the entire Old Testament irrelevant to Christians. That is the error. I already used the word, but that's known as antinomianism, meaning anti-law, against the law. And it's no better than legalism. And I want to say, beware, because there are many people in the evangelical movement today who hold this view, antinomianism. They teach that the Old Testament law is basically irrelevant for Christians. Antinomianism, it's pervasive, especially in this generation. Didn't used to be as popular as it is today. And it is sometimes set forth as an answer to the legalistic heresy of the Judaizers. Some people say the way to avoid the Judaizers' error is to see that we're not under law. The law of the Old Testament has no relevance to us whatsoever. But I'm going to show you that the way Paul answers the error of the legalists, he does not resort to any kind of antinomianism. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, Paul summarizes his attitude towards the law. He writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 8, We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. He's saying that there is a good purpose for the law and a lawful purpose for the law, and it's good if we use it lawfully. He's not throwing the law aside. He's not saying it has no relevance to us. And because antinomianism is such a problem these days, I want to spend a little time this morning in my introduction dealing with it so that you can see as we go through this passage how Paul's teaching here in Galatians in no way lends any support to that kind of thinking. He's not teaching antinomianism here. Now, antinomianism, as I said, the word means against the law. This view amounts to a full-scale rejection of the law of God. Antinomians reject not only the wrong uses of the law, but they also oppose even the rightful, lawful uses of the law. The kind of antinomianism I'm concerned with this morning is the doctrine of people who teach that the moral principles of the law are no more binding on Christians than the priestly and ceremonial requirements. People who say the entire law was swept aside when Christ came. Now, fortunately, most antinomians who adhere to this view do it in theory but not in practice. They live better than they teach. You understand that. When we speak of antinomians, we're not necessarily saying that these people practice deliberate ungodliness. But by teaching that the law is in no sense binding today, they they actually undermine the proper work of the law in people's hearts and lives, and they confuse people who sit under their teaching. By employing rhetoric that demeans and diminishes the moral law of God, they actually subvert the standard that is set forth in the law. And that's a serious error because it confounds the proper biblical distinctions between law and grace. And instead, it treats law and grace as if they were antithetical, completely incompatible principles, hostile to one another. That is not what Scripture teaches. I'm going to show you this. But let me first give you in the words of some antinomians what it is they say. Listen, for example, to this quotation, quote, 
When Christ died, God stopped employing the Mosaic law. He dissolved his relationship with it. He put the law out of business. Believers since the cross have not been under the Mosaic law even as a moral rule of life. If a person places himself under the moral aspect of the Mosaic law, he obligates himself to keep the entire law. The Christian is not under any aspect of the moral law, unquote. Now, that is typical mainstream, old-line dispensationalist teaching. I say that for for the benefit of you seminary students who know what that word means. If you don't, don't worry about it. But many of you grew up with this kind of teaching, and it is deeply ingrained in your thinking. The view that is set forth in that quotation I just read is the same view that was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible. And it was also taught at Dallas Seminary for years uh, because it was one of the key principles taught by Lewis Sperry Chafer, one of the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary. It became a staple of the theological system that was associated with Dallas Seminary. And even though many people in our evangelical circles tend to think of Dallas Seminary as a sort of paragon of doctrinal soundness on this issue, the teaching that has stemmed from Dallas has actually sown a lot of confusion and error. The no-lordship error is one of the bitter fruits of this brand of antinomian teaching. That's the roots of the view that says you can have Christ as Savior but reject him as Lord. Because if you're not under the law in any sense, you're not under the lordship of Christ either. And that's the idea. Now, you will notice an almost overt disdain for the law of God in some of the quotations I'm about to read. Let me just say at the outset that it is quite right to reject the law as a means of justification. That's what Paul is saying here. But in the quotations I'm about to read, these writers go too far and insist that the law is therefore of no use whatsoever to the believer, not even as a moral standard to govern our behavior. Let me read you some quotes. In his book, Grace, the Glorious Theme, Lewis Berry Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary, wrote this, quote, Since law and grace are opposed to each other at every point, it is impossible for them to coexist either as the ground of acceptance before God or as the rule of life. The law is not in force in the present age in any sense whatsoever, he says. The present nullification of the law applies to every possible application of the principle of law. You hear how comprehensive that is. This nullification of the law, he says, applies to every possible application of the principle of law. He couldn't say in any stronger language that the law is utterly irrelevant to Christians. And he went on to say this, quote, It is not necessary then for a believer to assume any law obligation whatsoever, unquote. Another quote, same writer, Lewis Perry Chafer, There is no longer any obligation to do the things which are written in the law. He says the child of God is free. He has been delivered from every aspect of the law, even as a rule of life, unquote. Now, he went on to try to qualify this by saying that Christians under grace do have some moral precepts to guide them. But listen to what he says, quote, 
Grace teachings are not laws. They are suggestions. They are not demands. They are beseechings, unquote. Now, those are his exact words. They're not laws. They're suggestions. Not demands, but beseechings. He says this, quote, The child of God has been delivered from every aspect of the law. The code of rules contained in the law has been superseded by the injunctions and beseechings of grace, unquote. And so, according to Lewis Sperry Chafer, Christians are accountable to no law whatsoever. We are bound by no commandments. The only moral guidance we get under grace, he says, comes in the form of suggestions, recommendations. And towards the end of his book on grace, he says this, quote, Should the children of God be placed within the bounds of reasonable law? Absolutely no. The Christian's liberty to do precisely as he chooses is as limitless and perfect as any other aspect of grace, unquote. Now, that is antinomianism. And while it may seem like the very opposite of the Judaizers' heresy, it's actually every bit as dangerous and heretical. And in theology, you'll find this is often true, similar errors are often found at extreme ends of opposite poles. I've said this before, that hyper-Calvinism is just as bad as Arminianism, and they actually share some of the same wrong presuppositions. Same thing is true here. Legalism and antinomianism may seem like they're poles apart, but they share some of the same presuppositions, and they're both the same kind of error. And oddly enough, even though at first glance you might think antinomianism and legalism are mutually exclusive, you'll often find that people who are antinomians are also very legalistic. It happens that way because they do think very similar kinds of uh, presuppositions. Now, obviously, when Paul wrote his epistle to the Galatian church, he was confronting the error of legalism, the view that was being taught by the Judaizers, who were claiming that in order to become Christians, Gentiles were required to observe all the Old Testament ceremonial requirements. These Judaizers, these legalists, were viewing the law as a list of basic entrance requirements for the church. And that was a very serious error because it obscured the, and ultimately nullified the principle of justification by faith alone. But, and what I'm going to show you this morning is that in answering the error of the legalists, Paul also debunks the error of antinomianism. As I said, oddly enough, these two errors that seem like polar opposites are actually based on the very same misunderstanding about the purpose of the law. And so even though they appear to be opposite opinions, they actually have quite a lot in common. Let me show you what I mean. The antinomianism of the so-called old-style dispensationalist Schofield-style dispensationalism, that sort of antinomianism stemmed from the erroneous notion that the law of Moses was originally given as a means of justification for people in the Old Testament era. And, in fact, you if you read the early literature of dispensationalism, the confusion on this issue pervades much of the literature. For example, there's a note at John 1.17 in the original Schofield Reference Bible that says this, quote, 
legal obedience, legal obedience was the condition of Old Testament salvation, unquote. Legal obedience was a condition of Old Testament salvation. And in Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, he wrote this, quote, According to the Old Testament, men were just because they were true and faithful in keeping the Mosaic law. Men were therefore just because of their own works for God, whereas New Testament justification is God's work for man in answer to faith, unquote. Now, let me say as plainly as possible, that is wrong. No one in the Old Testament ever was justified because of his or her own works for God. That's the whole point of Romans 4. It's it's the whole point of the book of Galatians as well. Romans 4, though, I love where Paul goes to the Old Testament and shows that believers from every era in the Old Testament were justified by faith, not by works. David wasn't just, and David understood this, by the way. David was not a justified man because he rendered obedience to Moses' law. He was justified by faith. But some of these old writers, Chafer and Schofield in particular, and other dispensationalists who followed their system, tended to be confused about this. And the confusion stems from the way they set Abraham against Moses and grace against law. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, we sort of talked about this, and you have a good foundation for it. If not, just understand, that is the very contrast Paul is making, or actually he's making a comparison here in Galatians 3. He brings up Moses and he brings up Abraham. He brings up the promise of the Abrahamic covenant and contrasts it with the demands of the Mosaic covenant. And he shows why the two are not saying the same thing. They're not incompatible. They don't contradict one another, but they're talking about different things. And Moses was not explaining the way of justification. But a lot of uh, the older writers used to divide the history of... That's why we call it dispensationalism. They had these seven dispensations. And they would recognize, of course, that Abraham lived under a dispensation of grace because the promise of the Abrahamic covenant was so clear. But they believed that at Sinai, that dispensation was superseded by a dispensation of law. And so they said at, at the cross... The Mosaic dispensation of law was then replaced by a new dispensation of grace. Not only that, they say that when this church age, the dispensation of grace is over, a new legal era will begin when Christ sets up his kingdom. And and let me read this to you in their own words. This is Lewis Sperry Chafer again. He says this, quote, According to the scriptures, all time is divided into seven periods or dispensations. The Bible is occupied in the main with the last three of these periods. They are the age and the law of Moses from Sinai to Calvary, the age of the kingdom from the second coming of Christ to the bringing in of the eternal stage, and lying in between the age of law of Moses, which is holy past, and the age of the kingdom, which is holy future, there is the present age of grace. And Chafer adds this, Quote, the rule of God in each case is adapted to the conditions which obtain. 
He goes on to explain how the system works in his view. In his system, instead of remaining the same from age to age, dispensation to dispensation, God actually vacillates between the ruling principles of law and grace so that Moses was instituting an era of law. The cross starts a period of grace. The kingdom will reinstitute a period of law. So it goes law, grace, law. And if you actually go back to Abraham, it was grace, law, grace, law. And God just vacillates between the two principles like this. That's what he was saying. Let me just say this. I think that whole notion that you have these contradictory principles and God fluctuates between the two, I think that is the worst error of old-style dispensationalism. You'll sometimes hear me say disparaging things about Schofield-style dispensationalism. That's why. Uh, It's a terrible error. Here's what Chafer was saying. He was saying that grace was the governing principle from Abraham until Moses. When Moses gave the law, then law became the governing principle so that Abraham and all believers in that era were saved by grace through faith. Genesis 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Grace was the rule. On that, we agree. But according to Chafer, a new dispensation was inaugurated at Sinai and God's governing principle became law. At times... Chafer even seems to suggest that the way of salvation changed. Remember, these are his exact words. He said that in the Mosaic dispensation, men were just because they were true and faithful in keeping the law. Men were just because of their own works for God, unquote. And so according to Chafer, the law superseded and eclipsed grace and the giving of the law established a new and different governing principle that governed both the justification and the sanctification of God's people. At Sinai, he's saying, the grace that was inherent in the Abrahamic covenant was overshadowed and replaced by the legal principles of the Mosaic covenant. Now again, that is a serious misunderstanding of the Mosaic economy. But, and here's the point I want to make, That very same misunderstanding lay at the heart of the Judaizers' error. It's the very same misunderstanding Paul is confronting in Galatia. The whole system of these Judaizers was based on the erroneous belief that Moses' law had superseded the gracious promises of the Abrahamic covenant and set up a whole legal system where you had to be justified by works. And that is the very error... Paul attacks here in Galatians 3. He took a very systematic approach to correcting the error, and I want you to follow his logic. So we'll pick up his argument beginning in Galatians 3.15. But first, let me remind you just briefly of the context. Galatians 3, verse 7, is the key verse in this whole chapter. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. In other words, Abraham is the prototype of, and the spiritual father of all who believe. His justification by faith is the pattern for the justification of everyone who believes. Verses 8 and 9 in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee all the nations shall be blessed. In other words, the heart of the gospel 
We said this last time. The heart of the gospel is found in the vast promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what the Abrahamic covenant was all about. It was an early promise of the gospel. Verse 9, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. In other words, the salvation of everyone who was ever saved is rooted in the promise of blessing that was contained in the Abrahamic covenant. That's what we've been seeing since we started Galatians 3. That was Paul's whole point. Everyone who's ever been saved is blessed along with faithful Abraham, which is another way of saying they are justified by faith alone. Everybody who's ever been saved. Like Abraham, they believe God and it is counted to them for righteousness, justification by faith. No one ever ever was justified because of his or her own works for God. Watch this carefully, verses 10 and 11. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. No man is justified by the law. The law was never meant to be a means of justification, never. But Christ came and died, verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, Paul is making a similar kind of contrast here between grace and law. He doesn't treat the two things as antithetical or utterly incompatible. He's saying they're different principles. They have different reasons. You have grace and you have law. And the Abrahamic covenant was built on this promise of grace. And he keeps using the word promise, promise, promise. The law is something different. It's not a promise. It's a set of commands. It has a different purpose. It's not telling us how to be justified. The the, the grounds of our justification are still spelled out by the promise that was made to Abraham. And in other words, here's very simple terms. The Mosaic Covenant was not given to set forth terms of salvation. The law was never a means of justification. Salvation from sin in every era stems from the grace promise that's contained in the Abrahamic covenant. That promise is what made salvation possible not only for Abraham, but for every believer of every era, all the nations of the world and all the eras of the world. That's the same promise that makes salvation possible for you and me today. Whenever a Gentile or anyone else, turns to Christ for salvation, it represents a fulfillment of the gospel promise made to Abraham, verse 8, in thee shall all the nations of the world be blessed. And so keep this thought in mind. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant established divine grace, which you know grace is unearned and undeserved favor from God towards sinners, The promises of the Abrahamic covenant established grace as the sole means of salvation from sin forever. And in a very real sense, our salvation, you and me, we owe our salvation to the promise God made to Abraham. Our salvation is a direct fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham, that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And the justification of everyone who ever believed, same thing, is rooted in the Abrahamic covenant and the promise there. All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. 
you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. We're going to continue with Phil Johnson's fantastic lecture as he's working through a text of the book of Galatians on why God gave us the law. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> presents Church Day Select. Siri, what are the chances of hearing Rick Warren actually rightly handle and correctly teach God's Word? That will take some serious number crunching in order to figure out. I'm not a Cray supercomputer. I'm just an iPhone. Are you sure you want me to calculate that? Yes, I'd like you to try to calculate that. Okay, I'll give it my best shot. Calculating. 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 Ouch, my processor chip hurts. Calculating. Calculating. Okay, I think I've got the answer. Here you go. There is a better chance that Harold Camping will predict the end of the world than there is of you hearing the Bible rightly taught by Rick Warren. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about the Bowflex Max Trainer. Now, if you're like me and you want to stay fit and you want to exercise and keep active, uh, but you don't have hours to dedicate going to the gym, well, consider the Bowflex Max Trainer. I've been able to use this piece of equipment over the last nine weeks, and I've been consistently able to lose a pound a week on the Bowflex Max Trainer. And some days I was only able to exercise... For 14 minutes. Yeah, that's right. There's a 14-minute workout on this thing that will leave you dripping with sweat. It uses uh, interval training to kind of boost your metabolism up, and the afterburn effect on this thing is actually quite amazing. So if you'd like more information about the Bowflex Max Trainer, visit FightingForTheFaith.com. And along the side, you'll see an advertisement for the Bowflex there on our website. Click on that, head on over to the Bowflex site, and check out the information regarding the Bowflex Max Trainer trainer. It has been a fantastic piece of equipment for me, and I'm hoping that if you're looking for a piece of equipment that will work for you and you have limited time, this will help meet those needs. Again, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Bowflex ad and get your Max Trainer today.
Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to understand the proper distinction between the law and the gospel and understand that you cannot attain a right standing before God by your law keeping, which, by the way, that's a good thing. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us. That's right. It is a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we're doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's light episode of Fighting for the Faith. Phil Johnson explaining to us why God gave the law. Here we go. Now, the Judaizers were teaching that the law of Moses came along and interrupted this promise. It superseded and replaced the grace that was inherent in the Abrahamic covenant. In that respect, they agreed exactly with old-style Schofield dispensationalism. They may, may as well have taken their theology from the notes of the Schofield Bible. And Paul begins in verse 15 to dismantle that error systematically. He wants the Galatians to understand three things. Number one, the permanence of the of the promise that was made to Abraham. Number two, the purpose of the law given through Moses. And number three, the the preciousness of our salvation in Christ. And that's going to be our main outline this morning. I hope to get through it in the time we have remaining. So I'm going to move quickly through this passage. And if you're taking notes, I want you to get that outline. I'll reiterate those points for you as we go through them. First, the permanence of the promise to Abraham. The permanence of the promise to Abraham. And notice, Paul begins by debunking this notion that Moses' law overturned the grace that was promised into Abrahamic covenant. He's saying the Abrahamic covenant was not set aside. It wasn't altered. It wasn't added to or revised in any way by the Mosaic covenant. They're two different issues. And this truth, by the way, is the heart and soul of what Paul is saying In all of Galatians 3, you get this, you've got the meaning of Galatians 3, and it's this. The giving of the law did not change the terms of salvation. A covenant of grace can never be replaced by a covenant of works. If you think about it, it's illogical, it's impossible, it couldn't happen. Let me read the text. Brethren, he says, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, there's a distinct change of tone here in verse 15. Notice how he began this chapter, verse 1, by saying, Oh, foolish Galatians! 
He's pretty harsh with them at the beginning. Now he addresses them as brethren. He takes a more tender tone here. He wants to reason with them here. He has rebuked them. He's admonished them. And the blunt expression he used in that context back in verse 1 was fitting. You foolish Galatians. But now he speaks to them a little more warmly. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Now, to paraphrase, what he means by that is he's going to take an, answer, he's going to take an example from everyday life. And in fact, that's exactly how the New International Version translates this verse. It says this, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. And Paul, by the way, you'll see this expression in lots of his epistles. I speak after the manner of men. Understand, that is not an appeal to human authority. He's not suggesting, okay, now I'm going to speak as a man. And so what I'm going to say here is just my own personal opinion. He is not saying that the observation he's about to give is any less inspired than the rest of the epistle. That's not what I speak after the manner of men means. What what he really means here is he's borrowing from a human analogy. He's going to speak from a human example. And so he says, I speak after the manner of men. And he makes this analogy from the human realm. The analogy is this, between the Abrahamic covenant, this great promise, and the comparison is a last will and testament. Though it be but a human will, a human testament, the human covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man can annul it or add to it. Here's the point. Once a covenant, and particularly a last will and testament, is in place, it cannot be revised. Once a testator is dead, the covenant goes into effect, and once it's in effect, it cannot be amended. Now, I know there's exceptions to that rule legally, but technically not and that's the point paul is making here and i don't know if you could if there were any exceptions to that rule in paul's day maybe not but it begs the question why why does he compare the abrahamic covenant to a last will and testament here why does he do this most covenants when we read about the covenants in the old testament we don't normally you're not supposed to think normally of a last will and testament it's not that kind of a covenant it's more like a treaty Most covenants were agreements executed between two parties and formally ratified. In Abraham's time, when two people wanted to make a covenant and and execute it formally, what they would do is they would first come to a mutual agreement of terms, and then as a formal ratification of their treaty, formally and ceremoniously they would sacrifice an animal. And this is gross, but this is what they did. They would cut the animal in two right along the backbone, and, and separate the halves of the animal. And, uh, this bloody mess, this carcass of an animal still bleeding, cut in half. And then they would walk together between the two bloody halves of the animal. Genesis 21 describes how Abraham and Abimelech executed a covenant together exactly like that in order to signify that they both agreed that the well at Beersheba belonged to Abraham. Whatever whatever the issues were there, it required such a formal agreement that they actually carved up an animal and made a formal covenant like this. Jeremiah 34 describes a similar covenant that was made between the people and their slaves during the time of King Zedekiah. Because the Babylonian armies were threatening Jerusalem, they needed all the manpower they could, and so in order to conscript all of the slaves to to join the army and defeat the Babylonians, they made a covenant with them that they were going to release their slaves 
so that they could serve in the army and the slaves then would be free. But what happened was when the threat of aggression was over, the Babylonian army retreated, according to Jeremiah 34, verse 11, the people actually tried to take back their slaves. They said, okay, well, if the Babylonians aren't up for the fight, covenant's off, you're back into slavery. In effect, they broke the covenant they had made with their slaves. And the Lord rebuked them with these words, Jeremiah 34:18, And I will bring judgment on the men that have transgressed my covenant, which they have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts thereof. So even in Jeremiah's day, they were still doing covenants the same way. You cut a cow in two and walk between it. And that method of cutting a covenant, they called it, that was a standard practice for formalizing covenantal agreements. The sacrifice of the animal provided a kind of graphic and bloody reminder of the solemnity of the covenant itself. Both sides were essentially saying this by walking together through this mess. They would say, may this happen to me if I violate the terms of our agreement. So it was graphic, vivid, bloody and very formal and a very important way of affirming a covenant. Now, if you remember Genesis from your Old Testament and the Abrahamic covenant, you remember that it was executed in a remarkable way. What happened was after Abraham had slaughtered a heifer and laid out the pieces to to go through the thing and formalize the covenant, Genesis 15 verse 12 says this, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And verse 17 says, It came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And what's the point here? Here's the point. God executed that covenant alone to show that it was one-sided. He walked between the pieces of the animal himself. It was an unconditional promise. Notice, Abraham, in the whole, all the descriptions of the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament, Abraham never makes any kind of reciprocal agreement with God. The Abrahamic covenant is completely one-sided. It's God's promise to Abraham. It was pure grace, a promise of what God would do for Abraham unconditionally, without any sort of conditions for his part in the covenant. He didn't have to do anything. It was an unconditional promise That's why he compares it here to a last will and testament. It's more like the promises contained in a last will and testament than it was a treaty between two parties. And therefore, because it was unconditional, the covenant was unalterable because there was only one party in the execution of this covenant, God himself. And so if you think about it, in order for God to change the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, he would have to go back on his word. And that's the one thing Scripture says God cannot do. He cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. He cannot lie, Titus 1.2. And he will not change his mind, Numbers 23.19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should change his mind. Hath he not said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he not spoken, and shall he not make it good? And so God's covenant with Abraham could never be altered. And it couldn't be amended in any way that would nullify the unconditionality of God's promise. God couldn't come along and say, oh, oh, wait a minute, Abraham. I meant 
there's something for you to do too. You couldn't add, you can't add on to it after the fact like that. The absolute freeness of the promise is based on the absolute certainty and the unchangeableness of God's word. Now, at this point, this is Paul's argument. This is the very argument Paul is making here. At that point, some of the Judaizers might have said, okay, yeah, but although the covenant with Abraham might not be altered, it, what if it was already fulfilled? It was a covenant with Abraham and his offspring. So maybe the Jewish nation in Moses' day actually lived beyond the scope of that promise. The promise had been fulfilled. So now God's making a new and different covenant. Paul actually anticipates that argument. And he refutes it in verse 16. Now, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now, by the way, the word for seed in Hebrew functions as a collective noun the same way it does in English, just the same way as the word seed. It can refer to multiple offspring, or it can signify a single individual. It's singular in form, but a collective sort of noun. Paul is suggesting here, and he's, remember, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is suggesting that there's actually a deeper meaning than what appears on the surface of Genesis 17, verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And the singular form of this noun is significant. Paul makes a lot of significance about it because, according to him, it signifies that the ultimate recipient of the promise, the the ultimate focus of this whole covenant, is Christ. It's not merely an indeterminate number of Abraham's descendants, but specifically, this is a promise to Christ. And a promise, by the way, that would be fulfilled by Christ, in Christ. Listen to Genesis 22, verse 17. In blessing, I will bless thee, and in multiplying, I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Now there, the collective plural sense of seed is obvious. I'll multiply thy seed like the stars of heaven. But now, listen to the end of verse 17 and verse 18. That's the same verse I just started reading. I'll multiply your seed and so on. And here's the end of the verse. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. There, the seed seems to refer to an individual. Paul says it's Christ. And Paul's point is that all the promises to Abraham's seed are ultimately, yes, collectively to his offspring, but ultimately focused primarily on Christ himself. Promises God made to Christ. And therefore, it wasn't possible, Paul says, for the unconditional grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant to be nullified or to be set aside before it was fulfilled in Christ. The law, therefore, cannot nullify the promise of salvation by grace. That's his argument. It's kind of an interesting argument, isn't it? And so in Galatians 3.15, he says it explicitly. Galatians 3.15, he says the Abrahamic covenant could not be altered Verse 16, he says, it could not have been completed except in Christ. And in verse 17, he says, it could not be replaced by any system of human merit. Now notice, uh, verse 17, very important. I, I would say this is the key text 
of the passage we're looking at this morning, verse 17. It destroys the old-style dispensationalist system, which taught that the grace of the Abrahamic covenant was somehow eclipsed by the legal requirements of the Mosaic covenant. Paul says this explicitly. Look at verse 17. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, what's he talking about there? That's the Abrahamic covenant, which was confirmed beforehand by God in Christ, that covenant, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Here's what he's saying. Once you've made an unconditional promise, and especially once an unconditional promise had been instituted by God, conditions cannot later be added or annexed to that promise. If conditions are ever added to an unconditional promise, that's the same as breaking the promise. And if you don't understand that principle, your kids will be happy to explain it to you. If you as a parent make a promise unconditionally, I'll get you a new bike, you cannot come along later and add conditions. I meant I'd get you a new bike if if you'd pay half or if you'd start mowing the lawn all summer or whatever. You can't do that. That's the same as breaking your promise. And your kids understand that. God would not nullify the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant by coming along later and establishing legal prerequisites for salvation. So Paul's saying whatever the law was intended to do, it clearly did not establish any kind of merit system for salvation. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, that's eternal life, be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. It can't be by law. It can't be by works. It was unconditional. The blessings of God that were promised by grace to Abraham, to his seed, to the Gentiles, cannot be gained by our legal observance. Because if those blessings could be obtained through the law, grace would be superfluous. And then Paul anticipates the question that's on all of our minds, verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? Why did God give the law in the first place? By the way, this is the second thing Paul wants the Galatians to understand. If you're taking notes, the first was the permanence of the promise to Abraham. Now he wants to show them the purpose of the law of Moses. Here's the purpose. Why? Why did God give the law of Moses, here's the purpose. Continuing verse 19. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, what does he mean it was added because of transgressions? Simply this. The law elevates sin to the level of an explicit transgression, and therefore it reveals sin for what it is. Romans 3 verse 20 says, By the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 4.15 says, The law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. He doesn't mean there's no sin if you don't have a law. He's just saying, if there's no law that spells out what to do and what not to do, you haven't explicitly transgressed a law. You can't see your sin for what it is. So the law reveals the true nature of the sinful heart. It reveals our sin As a transgression of the will of God, it shows our hearts as corrupt, set against the will of God, and that's one of the law's purposes. It intensifies and aggravates our sinful tendencies just to show us 
what sinners we are. Romans 5.20, the law entered that the offense might abound. And so the Mosaic law accomplished that by explicitly spelling out for us what God's moral demands are. And Paul says the Mosaic administration, with all its types and symbols, was temporary till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Here Paul is making the argument that the law is inferior to the promise of grace, and that which is inferior can never supersede or nullify that which is superior. Paul gives us three reasons why Moses' law was inferior to Abraham's promise, because it had an inferior purpose, because it was only temporary, and according to the final phrase of verse 19, because it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, I'm going to skip over all this stuff about the mediator. I was going to explain to you why that's important, but basically the idea is this. The law came through a mediator, which I believe is Moses. It was given through the ministration of angels. We're taught that in Hebrews as well. But the promise God made to Abraham was a promise to him directly, and therefore it's superior in every way. That's the argument he's making. Now, someone might conclude from all this that the law is evil, that the law is diametrically opposed to the promises of God. And in fact, that is precisely the conclusion antinomianism suggests. But Paul says that's a wrong conclusion. Verse 21, is the law then against the promise of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law which could have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. What's he saying here? He's saying what I said in the beginning, that law and grace serve different purposes, but they are not opposed to one another. To set the law against the promise is to imagine some kind of conflict in the purposes of God. The law is good, he says. It serves a good purpose. And in fact, he says God's law is so good that if it had been possible to institute a law that would have given life, God would have done that. But it's impossible for salvation from sin to come through law because once you're a sinner, you can't obey the law perfectly, and that's what the law has to demand. This is another way of saying what I often say. You cannot legislate the human heart into submission. You can't conquer, uh, even in society, you you will not ultimately conquer the problems that cause so much abortion and homosexuality and all these other things by passing laws to make those things illegal. I think they should be illegal. I agree with that. But I have to say, as Christians, we ought to understand that no law can resolve those root issues. The law only convicts us and condemns us. And in doing that, it incarcerates us in the prison house of sin, so that we are shut up, that's the terms he uses here, confined with no hope left but divine grace for salvation. And you know what? That's a good thing. It forces us to look to the grace of God for salvation. And so the law is not opposed to grace when it's used properly. In fact, the law serves a gracious purpose by driving us to Christ for salvation. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.8, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. There is a good and lawful use for the law. Used correctly, it guides us into grace. Now, that's a quick treatment of those verses. I know, but I want to finish this. We've seen the permanence of the promise to Abraham, the purpose of the law of Moses. Finally, Paul wants us to understand the preciousness of our salvation in Christ. Just real quickly here, pay careful attention to the imagery Paul is using. 
He's, he's speaking of sin as a prison, and it is. It's a perfect prison to every unjustified individual. We are in bondage to sin before we are redeemed by Christ. Verse 22, the law is like a jailer that keeps us enclosed in the prison till we come to Christ. Verse 23, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. And now notice, he changes the metaphor slightly. For believers, for God's elect, the law is something more than just a harsh prison master. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now we'll look at this more next week, the idea of the law as a schoolmaster, but this is a perfect metaphor for the true role of the law. It shuts us up under our sin. It threatens us. It punishes us. It constantly reminds us of our status as sinners, and it teaches us how we ought to behave. Verses 25 and 26, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We are adopted, in this imagery Paul is using, into the household of God with the full privileges of an adult son. We don't cast aside the moral principles of the law, but neither do we fear the law's condemnation. We're clothed with Christ's Christ's perfect righteousness. So in that sense, we're out from under the law's tutelage. But still, the law teaches us how we ought to behave. And Paul says, by the way, this is true of all believers, Jews as well as Gentiles, free as well as slaves, men as well as Women, verse 26, you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. Time just doesn't permit us to probe into those verses as much as I'd like to do. But I think you have the gist of this chapter already. Moses' law did not nullify or change the gracious promise of salvation by grace that was inherent in the Abrahamic covenant. All who are saved are saved by grace through faith. That's always been true. The Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law both underscore the necessity of divine grace for salvation. And anyone who thinks of the law as a means of salvation in any era has completely misunderstood the whole point of the law. Christ, meanwhile, frees us from the threats and the punishments of the law. He also frees us from our own futile attempts to try to fulfill the law as a means of justification. But as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he also frees us from the power and dominion of sin, which means he gives us liberty to live in accord with the moral principles of the law. That's the gospel. Paul sums it up perfectly in Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. And let me just close by reading those verses. He says this, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, what a glorious truth this is. And we confess that our sinful hearts are always prone 
to think in terms of what we might do to earn your favor. And Lord, help us to learn the lesson of the law that that's impossible for us, that our only hope is in your grace. And may we learn to live leaning on that promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. The grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.